Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Today is the fourth full day of our uh, Birkin retreat. And welcome back to the virtual Birkin Tea Room, uh, where we'll have an hour to take uh, questions uh, on the theme of the four Satipatthana. So last night, Ajahn thankfully went into the four elements uh, practice, which I was hoping he would cover and did a very beautiful job um, introducing those. He also talked a bit about the cemetery or corpse contemplations. Um, so, and we, we have some questions, some new questions on the uh, contemplation of the four elements as part of the body section of the Satipatthana. And uh, I believe tomorrow we'll be moving on to our tonight's talk. We'll start introducing some of the contemplations on Vedana or feeling. So I had a couple holdover questions from yesterday that I would like to do first, just to keep everything thematically uh, cohesive. So maybe first I'll start off with a question from Anka from Los Angeles. So this morning I was conducting a meditation on the body parts as instructed during the Dhamma talk yesterday. So that would be two days ago now. Specifically, I was meditating on head hair. I could see my strong attachment to it and how it is created and will continue to create a lot of suffering when not meeting my ideal of it. I could also see these aspects in relation to other humans, despite understanding on a logical level that I should grow unattached to my hair. I could not achieve this. And the thought of cutting it off is infused with emotions, both positive and negatively charged. My questions regarding this are, does acceptance take time because it's so strongly ingrained? And simple answer is yes, that, that does take time. And it's not through a mere act of thinking that our mind changes. Uh, we really have to cultivate the path. And um, these practices need to uh, be rehearsed and brought into the mind again and again. And uh, not merely by thinking of this once, twice, or even many times does our attachment shift. Uh, to these things, uh, the path has to be cultivated, the factors of the path, and the mind needs to be in this kind of serene, lucid state for some of the most effective uh, transformation to happen, for um, the, uh, the sign of the unbeautiful or seeing through deeply to uh, the natural relationship that uh, one could have towards the body parts, uh, hair in this question, um, so that it wouldn't cause any um, sense of me, mine, or self, or uh, desire um, leading on to sort of the experience of dukkha. So acceptance takes time. How can I grow more acceptance toward it is the second part. And also how does meditation on the body parts look like? Uh, 
is there a more or less effective way of conducting this? So I think I, I think I approached that fairly thoroughly yesterday, talking about you know, one could turn to the Wisudi Maga for some fairly extensive contemplations there, uh, or one could merely just take Ajahn sort of pointing out of the five external body parts and just develop a meditation around those where we're uh, bringing those to mind uh, again and again, and it's just reflecting on. Um, them either in the light of the three characteristics or through um, any sort of sense of uh, attachment uh, and desire. And, you know, both in formal meditation and in outside of meditation, eventually one will, will start to, through contemplation and regular sort of practice of this, uh, deepen one's self-understanding of what our relationship to these things are. And opportunities will open up to for that to shift and transform in in positive ways. So, uh, what it looks like? Well, you know, things you it can look many different ways. Our minds uh, and describing the say quality of any particular meditative state is very difficult. It can be very ephemeral, very unique. But what we want to be looking for, of course, is uh, diminishing strength in the the hindrances of the mind, in particular, uh, uh, greed for these things, like a undue sense of importance and investment and attachment to these things, uh, and an increase in equanimity, acceptance, uh, seeing them as not self, seeing them as mm, unsatisfactory and not necessarily bound up with our sense of well-being and happiness. So um, you want to get to a place where, in some sense, we have a very utilitarian attitude towards these things. Uh, you don't necessarily need to cut off your hair, but you can get to a place where it's just not much of an issue in your life, um, much like the monks. I mean, we, we all have the same haircut, and we, we just shave our hair off, uh, on a fairly regular schedule, all in the same day, which happens to be today. And um, I'm starting to grow a little bald pattern here, so I appreciate hitting shaving day. Um, I can create a little evenness, but I'm not really attached to it. It doesn't really matter. It's not something I give a whole lot of thought about. And part of the benefit of being part of this community of monks uh, and a bhikkhu is... Uh, I'm just uh, following the the ways and the habits of my community dating back to the time of the Buddha. There's no personality involved in it whatsoever. Um, so you know, there's even a curious feature where we shave our eyebrows in Thailand, and I've heard various thoughts about how that originated. It doesn't seem like they did this in the time of the Buddha. Um, but I ordained at this time and into a, a Thai Sangha of bhikkhus, and that's just what I do. And um, I haven't really given it a whole lot of thought since my ordination. It's just part of what my community members do, and uh, opinions might come up about whether it looks good or bad or whatever. But um, I've ceased making it 
something that I'm invested in at all. Uh, it's, it's not really even part of my identity. So I hope that helps out, Anka. Uh, next question is from uh, Amon from Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Through very intense Tai Chi practice, I've been cultivating this panoramic awareness uh, a lot, but I have not practiced focused attention on any single object. Because of that, the mind is quite present somewhere in the body and the senses, but also it's quite scattered. Uh, number one, is there a way to center the awareness, but yet at the same time have a panoramic view? And here, you know, the short answer, uh, Omon, is yes, there is. And Ajahn was speaking to this kind of balance between that kind of very discreet, uh, focused kind of attention and also this panoramic awareness. And um, one can develop that balance in almost anything they do, but especially in uh, good states of meditation, that, that balance should sort of be there. And, uh, you know, I experimented a lot with uh, mindfulness of the breath. And some of the early instruction I had gave a lot of emphasis to focusing at the tip of the nose. And based on some of the language, talking about the cultivation of samadhi as concentration, my conception was that, you know, I really was trying to narrow the uh, mind down to this very precise pinpoint perception. You know, words like singleness of mind, uh, I would interpret as the mind sort of like squeezing down to this kind of just bright, luminous, pointed awareness on the breath. And although there is something of a, a quality to that, um, oftentimes we get headaches. Um, because I would say the effort was too strong and the focus was too tight. Um, and some of it was just uh, inexperience. And the whole way I conceptualized my approach to uh, breath meditation. And in time, uh, reading about other approaches to breath meditation and also through experimentation, uh, but also partially through my own experience, just finding what was more sustainable, what was more uh, still and comfortable. You know, I had this sort of sense of something that was more of a balance. And it, the most profound states of serenity feel both single-pointed, but also very uh, panoramic and expansive at the same time. Um, and... I would say in the cultivation of, I would, I would encourage you to sort of explore the cultivation of breath meditation as a way to develop that and develop that balance because I think it has some particular uh, qualities to it where one can really get that sort of feel. And, um, you know, I, I spent quite a bit of time experimenting with other styles of meditation where you're really even starting out at an earlier stage uh, attending to the breath in the whole of the body. And I've had the experience of focusing on the tip of the nose, developing the concentration until 
I would get to a very similar place where the mind was very singly focused on the breath, but also uh, quite sensitive to the breath body. The breath has experience in the full of the body and then even going beyond the conception of the space that my body takes up. Um, but following some of the instructions from Ajahn Jeff and Ajahn Lee Damodaro, I also practiced cultivating in that way and you're turning more er, earlier on to this more expansive sense of the breath in the body which to me feels more panoramic although i might just note here like what ajahn was talking about goes even beyond the breath really i mean there is an overall sense of what you're doing why you're doing how it's going and there's these different phrases that come up in the passages where the Buddha is talking about our practice, and in particular talking about meditation practice, where it's clear one is, one is sort of checking in and discernment is working to sort of monitor what's going on. Are there hindrance present? Are they absent? Um, how's the posture? How's the energy? How's the focus? Is, how's, the, how's the effort? Is it too tight? Is it too loose? You know, so part of the role of that sort of panoramic view or that sort of a level of mindfulness isn't just holding on to the breath. And I mean, it's it's got that kind of broader sort of scope that it's bringing along in the exercise of developing the mind. So, uh, there's a bit more to your question here. Um, my thinking would be that it should be possible to have the breath has a central point within the panoramic view. So that's what I was trying to describe there. And this is what I would like for walking around the city, for example, in a way that I can move about freely, feeling confident I'm aware of my surroundings, yet at the same time feel stable and centered with the breath. And yes, that is possible to develop. With practice, you can get to that place. And you can get to that place with the breath. It can be a little difficult because the breath takes... Mm, a fair measure of mindfulness and concentration to, to hold on to in various environments. So uh, anyways, yeah, I would encourage you to really investigate breath meditation with the idea of developing both ends of uh, awareness. So it's a very suitable object for that. Okay. Turning to some, some of the new questions today. Uh, First question is from the Pacific Hermitage Group, and that's Scott from Bend. Scott, would you like to raise your question? Yeah, good, good afternoon, Ajahn. Good afternoon. Say, um, with the four elements talk, Ajahn Sona is, is pointing out that the reality is that the body is just part of nature. It's a, it's a natural phenomenon. And when I work with that, that, that seems you know fairly obvious to me and um, I seem to be able to grasp that, but in the background, there's this lingering uh, intellectual belief or some kind of a nagging sense that maybe that really doesn't apply to me, or maybe I'm, uh, I'm above that or distinguished from that view. So I'm, I'm having difficulty uh, integrating, I guess, a full grasping of, of the, the sense of the body as being a part of nature. So I was asking for a little bit of coaching or help on, on that. Hmm. What makes you think it's just intellectual? 
Well, it, it doesn't have a felt sense to it. Um, you know, usually when something comes from the body, you know, there's kind of a, a feeling in the body that I can sense. I'm not sensing a, a, something from the body in this particular case. It's like a, a thought that arises and just pops in. Um, like some, you know, that little image of the character sitting on your shoulder talking to you. saying, ah, that's not true. That's not true for you. Maybe other people, but not you. Well, there's, there's a few different ways. Um, we look at the problem of attachment to self. And part of my question is, some of it is view. And so, you know, one thing to investigate is where are you at with the view of, of being a self, being some special entity or something that exists through time and there's some sort of essence that is Scott, um, that is especially Scott. And, um, and, you know, this could be akin to sort of almost like a worldview or a religious view on one level, a very coarse level. Of course, it goes much deeper than that, though. And it's a habit of identification, a habit of thought and thinking, a habit of way of framing our experience, and, and a very, very kind of natural one. Um, and even in the realm of thought, you know, it's, it kind of goes beyond ideation, really. Uh, and then, you know, moving, moving down the spectrum in refinement, then there's, there's all kinds of very more subtle sort of dynamics of how the self is kind of constellated in experience. And, um, you know, it's, it's, the, it's, it's really the, some of the last, the subtle sense of self is some of the very last things to kind of fall away before full enlightenment or awakening so, you know, we really have to practice a lot, practice deeply, be kind of patient. Um, one thing that came up reading your question was just the question of how much time in your, like, you might want to reflect how much time of the time you devote to practice that you actually spend investigating the self. And it can be useful to, you know, a lot more time to, to a direct investigation. So, you know, one way you would approach this is spend some time overcoming um, the hindrances or creating a kind of serene and clear mind as much as possible. And then turn the mind to a conscious consideration of the question of the self. What is it that I take as myself? And there's various ways that one can can structure or guide that investigation. Um, you can just ask yourself in that calm and lucid state, um, what is it that I take to be myself? Where is it located in my experience? How does it arise? And, you know, this could be taken on a level of view, like, is it my body? And you arouse that kind of question for contemplation with a very sincere sensitivity towards like is that how does that feel what does that bring up you know when i ask myself this question in this very clear kind of wholesome space of meditation do i really think i'm the body and remember 
part of the notion of self here is uh, is this permanent or impermanent? Is it something that is under my control? Is it satisfactory? And like those are the in the Anathalakana Sutta, like those are the the questions, the probing questions that the Buddha is putting to the monks that he's talking to when he delivers that teaching is form, uh, meaning the body, is that self? Um, I mean, at first he asks, like, is form impermanent or impermanent? Is that which is impermanent satisfactory? And, you know, so there's, it's sometimes contemplation like isn't something that just necessarily always comes unbidden to one. It can. Mind can be a very wholesome state and because of the curiosity we have about Dhamma or something in the experience of the meditation, quite naturally the mind turns to to see some aspect of Dhamma, but also you can consciously sort of engage in it. And I think there's a place for taking up these kind of questions to try to ferret out where it is that, what is we identify with? Is it form? Is it feeling? Is it perception? Is it mental formations? Is it the experience of consciousness? So use the template of the five khandhas. Um, You can also uh, look at the four elements as Ajahn was talking about in the same way. Um, Is it earth? Is it, the fact that I'm solid and I have this kind of body and it's got a sense of solidity that uh, is part of the foundation of this sense of self that arises. Um, You know, you look at yourself in the morning and you look seemingly like you did yesterday. So it seems very solid in that way and uh, and unchanging. And is, is that playing a role in this kind of identification of the self? Uh, you can explore the 32 parts of the body uh, as well. Like it, I did a lot of interesting, fun contemplations with this before. Like, is, is myself in the head of the hair? Is myself in the hair of the body? Is the self in my nails? Is the self in my teeth? Is the self in my skin? Is the self in my flesh? Is it in my sinews? It is in my blood. Is it my heart? <laughs> it sounds quite silly, but you engage in that kind of contemplation in a very sincere and, and serious way, kind of sensitive to like where is the identification? Uh, it can be very useful. So, so you know, just in summary, like. I mean, this is something that's to overcome completely. It's, it's really a, a momentous sort of thing. It does take great patience. Um, and you might ask yourself how much time you're devoting to serenity and how much time you're devoting to sort of uh, investigating the mind um, around this kind of question. And then Think of these various frameworks that one can introduce as a way to kind of stimulate contemplation. So any follow-up on that, Scott, or? I appreciate it, it's very helpful. Uh, Anakalaka Sutta, what's the uh, reference on that? It's in our chanting book. 
It's, oh. it's the second of the, uh, the three cardinal sutras. Okay. So, Thank you. the discourse on non-self. Okay, next, uh, Mariam. Would you like your, your question? Yes. Hi, John. Thank you. Oh. Um, hi, I have two questions. One is with the, um, the four elements when I meditate, it kind of um, dawned on me, yes, last night with the four elements that Ajahn was defining for us. Mm. When I sit and meditate with the breath meditation, soon after I'm focusing, I feel this surge of heat starting from the head and it goes all the way through my body, through the toes. Mm. And it doesn't cool down. It gets painful as it's going through. It is just, the skin is just like needle going through the skin. Mm. And um, after it goes through the body, I'm sweaty. I get cool, but I've lo I lose my concentration at that point. Mm. And I try to stay focused on the breath. It doesn't... Uh, improve the situation I've been trying to think about the water element and imagining a cool water is going through from my head to my toe mm -hmm. that hasn't been helping so I was hoping you can maybe shed some light on that and then the other question is um, this past few days I feel a little bit overwhelmed with how to incorporate all these things in my practice and what is the best way of introducing little by little and do I do breath meditation? Do I do body contemplation? Do I do the four elements? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you can do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. Okay, well, as for your, your first question, like I, I've experienced um, that. I, I went through a period of years, several years, where that was something that um, was coming up for me. It was very kind of uncomfortable. And uh, I remember talking to uh, Ajahn Jeff from Wat Meta about this. And, um, and he, he gave me some, some good advice, which is along the lines of what you were trying to do there. Um, both he and some of the forest Ajahns who teach on the four elements do, do talk about learning to sort of balance the elements. I don't know that I've seen mm, seen it described in the same way in the suttas or whatnot, but I I I sort of took up his advice for a period of time and, and focused on that, and it didn't completely, you know, I, I don't think I was able to master it in the way it's like when I was experiencing an imbalance of fire that I could just meditate on the water element and and everything worked out, and I don't know. It was hard to sort of discern if something physical was just going on with my body during that time period or if it was mental. Uh, the relationship between the mind and the body are so intricate, it's kind of hard to know sometimes. But it's something that you might explore. And uh, I believe you live in Southern California. You might even um, take some time to go visit him and, um, and ask him about it because he has a, a detailed knowledge about meditation on the four elements. But, and I find some of what he had to say on this kind of very useful. So, um, 
you know, general advice, unless you're really wedded to uh, meditating on fire or something like this, and something like that's becoming a problem, then just leave it aside for now. And this kind of speaks also to your your other sort of sense of being overwhelmed. You know, all of these are just strategies endorsed by the Buddha and collected in this Maha Satipatthana Sutta. Um, and I would, you know, there's a few different things. Like you have a relationship with a teacher. Sometimes you can ask some advice of what they see in you and what they would encourage. Um, but also, uh, you know, for oneself, it's it's good to kind of contemplate where one's interest is drawn. What takes, like Ajahn talked a little bit about this with the uh, meditations on the elements last night. You you might be drawn to that, or you might be drawn to a particular element. Um, and, you know, maybe you have some comma, or maybe it's just very suitable for the type of mind you have and the interests you have. And so, you know, you, you get to be introduced to all of these, and you can read and experiment with them a little bit, but also be sensitive to where's your interest lie, and then pick one up, make a kind of commitment to explore and practice that kind of more deeply. And don't fret that you're not doing them all or even that you understand them all. So I've done a little bit of meditation on the four elements, but it's never, it's been one of the uh, meditations that didn't ever really strongly appeal to me. And I remember going for years and occasionally I'd read an Ajahn Chah talk and he talks about how useful it is. and. I think, wow, I really need to get back to sort of exploring that. And, um, you know, some of that was I was just living under this paradigm that uh, I should leave no stone unturned and I should master all these methods of meditation. And um, I don't see anywhere where the Buddha says that one needs to do that. Uh, you really want to stay focused on just cultivating the practice. And these are various practices and means that one can pick up to get the job done and it's quite fine just to have a simple meditation that works for you and keeps you engaged and brings about the results that one's looking for namely uh, the ability to put for right effort and overcome the hindrances and cultivate the factors of awakening and the uh, factors of the full path so don't be overwhelmed um, just pick one and make a commitment to it and you can make a temporal commitment for a period of time to really take one or more practice as your main focus. And then if you have some interest to experiment with others, then pick them up for a time and make a commitment to them to explore those and um, see what works and see what, see what's beneficial. And there's times of your life where you, you may need to uh, focus on some, some rather than others, as we talked yesterday. You might be in a space where contemplating the body or contemplating death and uh, contemplating the elements just, just not working for you. And that's fine. Just set it aside. There's so many different ways that one can accomplish the Satipatthana and even accomplish Satipatthana by use of these different meditations on the body, namely Anapanasati, mindfulness of the postures, mindfulness of even those first five parts of the 32 parts. Um, so how's that, uh, sit with you? Is there any, 
Uh, well, thank you for saying that. It makes me feel better. I've, um, the fact that I don't need to learn all of them and master them, <laughs> it, it's good. <laughs> it's good. Um, one follow-up question on that would be, you said to try each to see which one resonates with me more and which one mm -hmm. um, interests me more. Mm -hmm. um, I've noticed that I have this tendency that I practice something for a week and then I, you remember, I pull it up to see if the root is growing or not, you know, <laughs> some kind of thing. Yeah. So in your opinion, in, with your wisdom, how long should I try something new to see if this is something that can lead me to where I need to go? I'd give it more than a week. Um... You know, there's a, you know, you could take a period of time where, like, take it, take at least a month or something to explore something okay. and sort of, um, and that's really just an introduction to, um, in learning the mechanics of how you might apply that sort of meditation and develop that, um, so many of where these meditations take us is really kind of along the same path. Uh, so it's not all that important what it is that you develop, but it is important that you develop sort of deeply to achieve the goals of practice. So, um, but, you know, pick, pick something and stick with it for at least a month and see if it's something that you want to develop a longer kind of relationship with it. And um, I always encourage people to take breath meditation because the Buddha gives such high praise to that and such praise as that being especially suitable for all temperaments. There's certain meditations, as Ajahn was talking, that are suited for different personalities and different temperaments. But the Buddha says uh, breath meditation in particular has this kind of universal applicability or suitability for people. So um, I encourage making a long-term commitment to that one. And then, you know, say loving kindness meditation or a meditation on the Brahma Viharas, you might pick one up and take a focus period of time longer than a week, uh, at least a month or so to really start to sort of develop it. And then you could move through all four and try to build some sort of practice around that and see if you have an affinity for one over the other, and then maybe make an even longer kind of commitment. You know, it's not unreasonable to, to make a commitment to spend some time every day for the next year cultivating uh, loving kindness or even the next five years of your life or 10 years of your life. <laughs> you know, uh, you can't go wrong. If something is you know, in a short period of time, you might, you might find that it's not a suitable meditation for you or that it's bringing up more bad than good. It's bringing up more obstructive and afflictive emotions and good emotions. So in, in, in particular, like some of these body contemplations can have that effect. The meditation on 32 parts of the body, meditations on the um, stages of a corpse decaying, you know, for some people, they that might not ever, they might not ever be in a place where that's an interesting or even a useful practice for them. Uh, 
but it is there and it is praised by the Buddha and can be used to accomplish the goals of, of our practice here. So, but one needs to know for oneself. So, okay. Thank you, Ajahn. Mm-hmm. So we have some other questions here about uh, meditation on the elements. So actually this is uh, meditation on the body. So this is from Patty uh, Panzik in Portland. So let's see, Patty, are you? Patty is not in the room, that's right. So. Patty's question is, last night's reflection on the elements of fire revealed views of anatta, just like when I contemplated skin as one of the five external body parts. I removed the skin from the body, and so that became a big lump of flesh, clearly not me. But I'm longing for pity and sukha in my practice, and it feels dry now. Can you recommend a way to encourage that too? Well, my reaction is just one night of that practice and you're already longing for pity and sukha. It's, I think you're being a, a little impatient uh, with yourself. By all means, just keep at it. It can take a, a while to really uh, learn how to effectively sort of use these practices. Um, they can definitely take us to that place and they can, uh, excuse me, Uh, you know, if one, one sort of really learns how to develop them as a meditation, um, that those that meditation can take the mind to a very serene place, even even to the jhanas, where one will experience a, a overcoming of the hindrances and the uh, arousal of the jhana factors, including pity and sukha. Um, how that how that happens, like you know, just depends on the the kind of cultivation that you you develop with your relationship to the to the meditation and sometimes it comes quite unbidden once really just sort of reflecting and then also the mind the hindrances fall away and the mind becomes very uh, serene and one pointed and and pity and sukha arise in the mind and you you enter a, a profound state of serenity uh, so anyways, the short answer there is just keep at it. And don't be longing for those things. I mean, you do want to mm, develop the meditation moving in that direction. Um, so, you know, there are things to kind of keep in mind as you're developing the practice. So now I'll jump forward to a question from Patty in Bend on the four elements. What a beautiful and inspiring talk by Ajahn on Monday night. The suggestion to use the four elements if you love nature resonates deeply with me. I would appreciate a bit more guidance about what that would actually be like as I sit in silence. He mentioned two aspects which sounded like the internal and external the body as earth and water, 
breath as air and body warmth as fire. Then external being mountains, rivers, fresh air, and a campfire. Do I think about all those things? How do I keep it out of imagination? It feels like the four elements could be a powerful meditative tool for me, but I want to use it wisely. So Patty, um, you know, what it would look like, I mean, minds are so kind of different, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to prescribe uh, what it should look like. You know, the broad features we're looking for though, is, you know, something that really allows you to sort of come, come back to the present moment, ground oneself in the present moment, uh, overcome the hindrances, overcome the obsession with uh, greed and covetousness, the world covetousness towards the world, as it describes in the sutta, or you know the obsession with thinking happiness is out there, and to turn kind of inward in these kind of contemplations of the elements to overcome the proliferative nature of the mind, ground oneself, and in the sign of the meditation, um, and it can be internal, it can be external. Um, and similar to this kind of earlier answer and something that Ajahn mentioned is like one wants to be sens sensitive to what one is maybe attracted to or what one sort of resonates with and explore that uh, so for instance you might you might be interested in exploring sort of the earth element and its principal feature is solidity and mass. And I've, I've done some practice with this particular element before. And, you know, I just, I tend to sort of focus on both internally and externally um, how solid mass is and how hmm, stable and still it is. And like by noticing, like, directing the mind to that like the the sense that it is solid and does not move as as more as like say the air air is vibratory so as compared to the air element earth is solid still slow moving and so you know one way i, I would contemplate that is like in this kind of body and my ability to sense the solidity of the body, the mass of the body, the heaviness of the body, the slowness of the body, as I also perceive a mountain or a stone or the earth itself. Um, you know, and this is about our perceptive, subjective experience of those things, as Ajahn was talking about. So, you know, you you look out or even you just imagine um, a patch of earth and how it exhibits this sign of solidity. And it's peaceful, it's calm, it's not, it's untroubled, if you will. Um, 
by comparison to sort of my mind, which is constantly identifying, disidentifying, liking, disliking. And then you look at the earth, even just a patch of grass outside of your window. And then compare that back to that sort of subjective experience of everyday mind. And the, the sign of that solidity, that stillness, the, even the equanimity that I sense in the earth. And there's passages in the suttas where the Buddha talks about the earth. Um, showing no, um, not sort of caring that people tread on it, spit on it, urinate on it. Um, it it fosters um, the mind sort of moving in that sort of same direction, like towards stillness, towards equanimity, towards acceptance, towards serenity. Um, and, you know, the recognition comes back to me that this body is not different than that. Um, even some of what we know from reading science tells us that this body is composed of atoms that have been around in this universe for some time, endlessly recycled. It's not different than that. This sort of sense that it's me and mind is, is, is misguided and some self-generated delusion uh, that leads to all kinds of afflictions. And when I attend to that sort of sign of earth element, it sort of moves me away from that and towards something is more solid, still, and peaceful. Um, but that is just one way that one can engage with that practice, like just reflecting on um, the, the solidity of earth element. And it's, you know, something from reading uh, other accounts of people doing that practice that I kind of came up with, but, you know, largely it's a construction of my own. And it's like something that I sort of just played around with and discovered and found some use in and, and practiced for a period of time. Um, I was always attracted to um, focusing on water as well. There's a period of time where I lived in a monastery that had several large ponds in the monastery. And I used to like to do walking meditation and then also just sit there and attend to the water. And what I, I found interesting with water is I could, and actually with many of these element meditations, is I have the type of mind that can sort of see the solidity of water because, you know, water obviously has this mass and it like sits in on the earth. And uh, we know how heavy water is, especially when you have to carry some around, any quantity of it. So, you know, I could focus on the earth element in a body of water, but I'll, also you can focus on the cohesive, cohesive element. But what I would often like to do is just uh, focus on the motion element that's there in the water. And you could say that's the air element, because it's like the air or the wind interacting with the water that's creating these kind of ripples and patterns of reflections on the top of the water which are inherently soothing and tranquilizing endlessly complex and fascinating and just by 
giving full attention to that uh, and the motion of that. It's very um, serene and tranquilizing uh, meditation. And I do it the same with the same intention that I would turn to the breath in order to bring myself into the present moment, to overcome discursive thinking, excessive identification with mind and body, and develop a sense of clarity and serenity and joy and equanimity. Uh, waterfalls can be very nice meditative experiences as well. Um, also just sitting out in the wind and just like listening and feeling the wind and focusing on the vibratory dynamic uh, nature of motion and movement. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that we, we, we just really need to kind of um, understand that the essence of what's been pointed to there and um, Ajahn sort of pointed that out in his talk, and it's also talked about in the suttas and other places. And it's those elements of solidity and cohesiveness and heat and uh, vib vibration or movement, as I think of it. Um, and then build some sort of meditation around that, sort of with the thought of what it is that we, we, we want to be developing in our meditative practice. And that includes both the serenity aspects we're trying to cultivate as well as the insight kind of aspects that we're trying to cultivate. And I, I kind of mentioned, I can't, it's either my morning coffee thing or maybe yesterday when Anchum was talking about the heat element, you know, I immediately sort of seized on how one could use that to create a sense of selflessness because one doesn't own the heat and one doesn't control the heat and, um, it's just um, moving from like heat's always trying to move to equilibrium. So if I'm hotter than the example Ajahn used is like if you're hotter than the stone, then the heat's like moving into the stone. If the stone's hotter than you, then that heat's kind of moving into that space that you identify as you, but it's not something you control. Uh, Charles, you have your hand up. Uh, thank you, Ajahn. Yeah. I'm curious now, I've heard it a couple of times, the, 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 uh, the function of listening while contemplating the elements. How does listening fit with uh, contemplating you know, elements both internally and externally? Well, it's, yeah, it's another one of these senses that we can just uh, tune to and make use of um, in really many forms of meditation. Uh, you know, principally breath meditation is something where we're attending to the feeling of, of the breath, the touch sensation, I would say. Um, Ajahn gives a lot of focus to breath meditation as meditation on the air element. And in particular, we're sensing the air element. But, uh, you know, at first, for me, it's always the touch sensation, like air is touching the nostril and air is touching the body and air is creating movement in the body which is touch sensation. But um, sometimes when I, when I first start to sort of focus on my breath, um, the mind doesn't want to focus on the touch sensation. And 
I'll just start off with listening to the breath. I can hear it in my head. I can hear the breath kind of coming in and out. And so sometimes that might be the first thing that presents itself to me. And I'll start there and then maybe move on to sort of attend to the breath in a more refined way. Um, so um, listening, listening can be kind of incorporated uh, really in many meditations. So. Thank you. Okay. So moving on, we have a question from Monica in Milano, Italy. Dear Ajans, thank you for all you're doing now in the time of the coronavirus and all that you've done for us in the past. Today in Italy is the first day of phase two of the COVID crisis. Life is getting slowly, hopefully, back to normal. Apart from the suffering of others, these have been a very positive two months. I have done practically nothing else but listen to Dhamma talks, meditate, and life has settled into a very pleasant and peaceful routine. I have not watched one movie. I've had very little idle conversation except with my relatives, and in general, very easily disassociated from the old life. My brain seems to refuse to get involved with anything that is superficial, meaningless, or that is interesting to others. And so this is my question. How to approach this new phase without losing all that I've gained in this time? I've had previous experiences where I've been caught up in life and lost a lot of the benefits of spiritual progress. I've been practicing Theravada Buddhism for almost 15 years, but the path has been anything but smooth. So this time, I would like to have some advice. So, uh, Monica, I've heard similar stories from people, and um, this is one of the silver linings of this great disruption, um, is that people have been uh, forced almost um, to sort of break out of their their routines, their daily routines. And um, with that sort of shift, they've been reacquainted with a different way of being and a different set of habits. And as in your case, kind of reconnected with something that you find a, a, a more precious and satisfying than um, maybe some of the habits you had or where some of your energies were being directed and uh, you know, this is not easy. I mean, we have we have our own kind of personal comma, and we're not totally in control of our life. Like this coronavirus created the context for you to have what you what you describe as a very positive sort of two months. So you know, one one doesn't want to get too crazy about trying to hold on and control because you're you're not in control, and this is what the Dhamma teaches us, and. Um, it's hard to know um, what challenges our comma will present to us. So one wants to have an open mind, but you do want to reflect on this experience and how valuable you find it and how it fits maybe some deeper priorities that weren't being fully realized in the way you were living before. And then find a way to make new commitments. Um, 
you won't go back to your life as it was before. It's never quite ever the same. But if you reflect uh, deeply on what it is that you're finding beneficial and useful in this time period and think creatively and make some commitments, um, you can steer your life or guide your life in a way that, that honors um, that value that you find in Dhamma practice. Um, and don't be too anxious or brittle about it, but it, you know, life is fleeting and short and we never know what is up ahead. So do take it seriously and take it to heart and think about how it is that you can make some changes in your life. Um, you know, very practical sort of changes and commitments that, that honor the, uh, that which you treasure and that which you find so useful in this, in this period of practice that you've been through. So, um, so that would be my advice for you. Uh, we have one. Let me just double check if I missed something here. We have one last question for today in just a couple of minutes. So I'll try to answer that. This is from Pat Morgan in Bingen, USA, right here, the twin city with white salmon. In relationship to others, my earth aspect is often an earthquake. My fire element is too often a forest fire. My water aspect is too often a tsunami. My air aspect is too often a hurricane. For example, I recognize a conditioning to judge and criticize first. It's very hard to find joy and happiness in the way I see others proclaim their joy, except when I'm alone in nature, in the woods, on the sea, on a river, on a mountaintop, or when I simply stay alone. How can I best practice with this? Well, Pat, some wise man said once, trouble is others. And certainly like our relationship to others is, is a great kind of challenge. But when I read your question uh, earlier today, the thing that kind of came to my mind is um, a contemplation where you're kind of comparing your relationship with nature and your relationship with people. Ask yourself, why do you make it any different? Like, why is it, why is it that your experience of nature is so untroubled, but then um, dealing with nature in the aspect of other people, it's so very different. And uh, having lived as a forest monk and living in the forest for so many years is, this is something I ask myself, I'm often caught up in some drama or disagreement, um, usually quite minor. Um, with someone in my community and then I'm walking back through the forest and I start to feel the serenity and some of the distance of that interaction fade away. And occasionally I, I look at a tree and I think, why is that any different? You know, why, why don't I have a problem with that tree? Why don't I have a problem with that rock? Um, do I have preferences? this tree over that tree, sometimes, but not the same way that my likes and dislikes manifest in the human realm. Um, do you find fault with the rocks? 
Do you find faults with the trees? Do you criticize the waves on the ocean? Uh, why do you do this with people? Um, so, and our relationship with with nature can sometimes act not just as a a balm and some sort of soothing respite from the difficulties of interpersonal relationships, but also it can kind of provide us with this mirror. Uh, and you know much of nature does present itself as beings like um, one of my love of certain sized rocks is they they have a scale which is related relatable as a as a being you know it's a rock as big as a bear or as big as a lion or something big as an elephant um it's easy to relate to it as like this entity or this being and same with trees even massive trees and plants and animals and spending time in nature, I oftentimes just try to reflect and think of them as beings and then compare how my relationship to them differs so much from other human beings. And um, why is the relationship with nature so untroubled and with human beings uh, so fraught, so troubled? And the obvious answer is me and, uh, and my habits. Um, not that other people don't do challenging things and present us with um, challenging, even painful conditions, but ultimately it's it's really our reaction and response to that that creates the problem, and in particular creates the problem that we can do something about. So, uh, so anyways, I'll kind of leave that for your contemplation today, and thank everyone for your questions. Uh, just a reminder, get your questions in by 9 a.m. for tomorrow. And Ajahn's fifth talk will premiere tonight at 8.15. Uh, there should be a, a link to the question form in the description of this video on YouTube. And also you can find that on Birkin.ca. So have a good rest of the uh, evening and we'll see you all tomorrow.